Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, everyone. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hey, there we go. Good to see you this morning. I trust that uh, you are enjoying the presence of the Lord as we come in to sing our worship to Him. And we're starting a new series today called Blueprints, and it's built on uh, loosely on the book that we're going to study in the All Church Journey called The Master's Plan of Evangelism, which was written by Robert Coleman all the way back, if you can live, think back far enough, all the way in the 1960s. But the principles that he writes about are good for every day of the year, no matter the date, because it's the principles that Jesus implemented to build his kingdom. Now, you can see that our goal is to be a Jesus church where the gospel is central, and part of the command of being a Jesus church is to make believers, loyal followers of Christ who seek after him and uh, who follow him diligently. And that our goal is to love Jesus and build people and lead revival. So one of the things that we hope to be able to look at is uh, how did Jesus implement his plan for his kingdom? What worked and what didn't work? And why are we going to try to engage people in this process of an all-church journey? And why should you consider getting involved with Jesus in a more personal way. So that's what we'll be talking about. And speaking of blueprints, uh, on your way out today at the table, there is a packet of information about the remodel and the refresh that's going to happen on this side of the building. It started uh, yesterday, but uh, there's been a lot of meetings and vendor meetings. And and Pastor Mike, along with Dan Book, who's the head of the facilities committee, uh, have been working with vendors and and those who are uh, planning and designers to try to create a plan that will move us forward over the next 12 to 18 months to remodel and refresh. There's a uh, kind of a site map plan and a layout of the building there, so it's kind of a blueprint, and you're gonna wanna pick that up on the way out. It'll give you project uh, ideas of what the timelines are gonna be generally and where uh, the building is being refreshed, the entire side behind this auditorium. So it's a huge project, it's a lot of square footage, but you're going to get the basic plan by picking one up on the way out. There used to be a room here in the church that had all of the blueprints of every construction that was ever done. And when you pick up a blueprint and you take a look at it, however big the blueprint is, uh, you realize just how much detail is put into the architect's drawings and that one page will have the entire layout of the infrastructure like HVAC. There might be another page for where the plumbing goes. There might be a page of how the land is going to be, uh, the, how it's going to be excavated. I mean, there's just pages of pages of things in there because the infrastructure is as important as the final product that you're going to be looking at, right? And an architect takes all of that into consideration. Well, Jesus is the architect of his kingdom. He came to build uh, the kingdom of God back and to reintroduce and to take back righteousness in the world. 
And when we look at the scriptures, what we find is that he has placed in there a blueprint for how the church can transform individual lives and then society collectively. So what we're going to do this morning is to take a look at the part of the plan that Christ had that he turned away from in order to implement a strategy that could work for thousands of years. A strategy that's still good today for us sitting here this morning in this building that will still work in Lidditz and that will still work to transform our world in which we live. We want to take a look at that, and I want to kind of set the context for the conversation. Have you looked around your world and thought to yourself as you've read the latest blog post, news article, television show, the world has gone mad. What in the world is happening to the world? Things that were up are now down, things that are left are now right, things that are are red or now blue, things that are, are uh, historically claimed to be good or now claimed to be evil, things that are historically claimed to be evil or now proclaimed to be good. What in the world is happening? And you feel it impinging on your life, and you wonder, how in the world am I going to change this? And for many of us, we look at this problem in a macro sense, and we say, well, I'm going to get out along with my Christian friends, and we are going to get out on the internet because the world is a mess, and so I'm going to post my outrage on social media and convince everyone they are idiots for holding their viewpoints. I'm so mad. You ever feel that way? Like, what in the world are people thinking? How in the world could anybody think that would be right? And, and so we get mad, and we take this idea that, you know... I'm going to go tell millions of people who can get on social media, or I'm going to go to a public forum, like a school board meeting, or uh, I'm going to write a letter to the editor so that 12,000 people who read the paper can see it. I'm going to express my outrage. And then nothing happens. Because the world just continues on, and what you find is the people on the other side, who you think are idiots and who you're mad at, come back doubly as strong and it's like you cut off the head of a dragon, and it grows two back. That's what it's like. Mass attempts at solving large problems almost never work. And I'm going to show you that with Jesus. Mark chapter 6 is Mark the gospel account of the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle of Jesus that occurs in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it must have been so impressive that all of the people that were, all of the 12 disciples who were following Jesus, it must have been such an amazing thing that every single one of them felt they had to write about it, that they had to include it in their Gospel. And we know the story. Uh, Let me read a couple of the passage of verses from Mark chapter 6, and then I'll set a context for us. Many who saw Jesus and his disciples leaving the area where they were at recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So Jesus was here, they left, and all the masses ran to the place where they thought Jesus was going so that they could be there when he got there. And when Jesus landed and saw a huge crowd, now here's Jesus looking at his world, 
And it's a different world. It's an agrarian, agricultural era in human development. It's not industrial. It's not technology. It's agricultural. But the people still had the same realities. They were lost. They had crazy ideas about God and about society and sin. The sin that upsets us so much right now in our country that we see up and down, backwards, and good and evil transformed, that has been the existence of the world from Adam and Eve's sin. In our country, we get upset because we weren't built on a world that was messed and confused. We were built on a Judeo-Christian ethic, which has a very clear set of understandings about a lot of things. But the rest of the world has always lived the way we're experiencing it now, with people that have all kinds of ideas about all kinds of things, and who were very aggressive about pushing their beliefs on everybody else. They didn't have the tools we have today to do it. They didn't have media, and they didn't have a crowd to try to promote their agenda. But nonetheless, they had messed up ideas and mixed up ideas, and, and Jesus came to do something about that. And it says that when he looked out at this lost crowd of people, look at at the next phrase, he had compassion on them. Because they were what? Like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Now Jesus looks out at the lost with their crazy, nutty ideas where they just don't seem to make sense to those of us who've held to a different worldview. And he looks on those people, and it doesn't say that he was angry with them. It doesn't say he was mad at them. It doesn't say that he was going to go out of his way to make a scene to confront them. No, it says he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were acting like lost people with idiotic ideas Because they are lost people. And lost people will follow whatever shepherd the crowd follows. And I want to remind you of this. Jesus said the following. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And narrow is the road that leads to life. And then I want to remind you of the last phrase of that verse. And few there be who find it. Let me repeat it. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to life. And few there be who find it. What is Jesus saying? The world is full of shepherds who lead people astray down a broad path of destruction. Those who have ideologies that are intended to express freedom, but which in fact lead to destruction. This is Jesus telling us this. We should not be surprised that the world is leading a broad conversation to destruction. Jesus told us the way to life is narrow. It's only through him and through following and trusting him. And he says very few people in the history of the world, of the billions who've lived on this planet, very few find it. That's the words of our Savior, the Jesus we proclaim. And so... When we're told about how he viewed these lost people, what does it say his heart towards them was? It doesn't say that he was angry and wanted to call down fire from heaven. 
His disciples wanted to do that. You remember reading that story? The disciples went out one day, and they were wandering. Uh, Jesus had given them an assignment. Go out into the, to the countryside. Go visit every town and tell them about who I am. And they went out two by two, 70 of them, 35 ministry teams. And they went out, and two of the guys came back. You know them. Their names are James and John, who Jesus calls the sons of thunder. And John wrote however many books in the New Testament that we have. And they came back to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we went and we told people about you and they didn't want to have anything to do with you. In fact, they kicked us out of their town. Let's call down fire from heaven and burn them alive. And Jesus said, well, you obviously don't know the plan of God. You want to know why Jesus wasn't in such a hurry to call down fire? Because Jesus knows what hell is really like. And he doesn't want anybody to go there. Seriously. There are Christians who I think would be kind of pleased if God would send hellfire down on all of the enemies of Christ. But you know why it hasn't happened yet? Because the loving, compassionate heart of God says that God is not pleased with the death of the wicked. It brings God no pleasure for those who are unbelievers to die and suffer punishment. God is not happy about it. God is not happy when his enemies are destroyed. Now think about that. How many times in the name of God and in the name of Jesus has our world recently in this social media age, in the name of Jesus, wanted to bring destruction on its enemies? Completely forsaking the blueprint of how God actually transforms his world. So Jesus has this mass... Probably 10,000 people are there. Not counting the men, there were also the, their, their spouses and singles and children. So it's probably more than 10,000 people that he feeds that day. And then Jesus, doing what he came to do to proclaim himself as Messiah, he began teaching them many things about himself. And one of the things that he taught was to take the, the physical bread that he had fed the 10,000 people with and to turn it into a metaphor about spiritual food. And what Jesus is basically saying in his teaching is, physical food is important because it meets the needs for a moment, but the more important thing is spiritual food. What nourishes your soul? What gives you meaning? What gives you purpose? What gives you joy? What gives you a sense that the world is not out of control? What puts hope in your heart when nothing else will? And so he starts teaching the crowd that he is the spiritual bread of life and that if people will partake of him, they can have their spiritual hunger satisfied, their spiritual thirstiness satisfied. You know and I know we live in a world that gives you a million experiences that tell you you have to have this experience in order to be happy. And many people go after every experience because they don't want to miss out. But you know what we know is true? Jesus talks about it at the woman at the well. That water, if you drink it, you'll still be thirsty later. But what if you could find a spiritual water that would satisfy your soul so that the physical realm didn't dictate how you lived? What if there was a spiritual reality inside of you that gave you a satisfaction that allowed you to live life and see life in a different way? So he starts talking to the masses of crowds about himself being the bread of life. 
And it's recorded for us in John 6. Right after he feeds all of these people, he preaches a sermon. And he says this, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now he's talking about spiritual sustenance, the thing that brings purpose and meaning to your life. And he says that thing is only found in himself. And so he invites people to eat him and drink him. And he implements a communion service. And if you've ever been in a communion service, uh, or if you're from a, a Catholic perspective, you go to Mass and, and they break the bread and you drink the juice or the wine. Uh, what, what, what is that supposed to be? It's supposed to be symbolic action reminding you of who satisfies your deepest spiritual needs, right? What did Jesus do? And how does that achieve spiritual satisfaction in your life? So he's speaking spiritually and metaphorically based on the miracle that he's achieved. And he says, hey, if you take from me, you eat me, you follow me, you're you're fellowshipping with me, you're walking with me, you're talking with me, you're reading my word, you're abiding with me, we're in fellowship with one another, you'll never go hungry again. Oh, you might have physical hunger sometime, but you'll never be thirsty inside or hungry inside looking for purpose looking for some satisfaction. Now, we live in a world where there are a lot of people that are leaving the church. They're called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And when they're surveyed by organizations like Gallup or whatever, they tell the surveyors that they don't go to any church. Their religious affiliation is none. And many of the people who are joining that group are Christians or who claimed the name of Christ. And the question is, if Jesus says this is true, why do so many people leave and quit following him because they obviously apparently have found that it's not true? And that comes down to the reality of Jesus' strategy. Jesus never intended his strategy to be that people would gather in large crowds and hear some specialist called a pastor teach them the word of God, and then they would leave and they could call themselves a Christian. That was never Jesus' strategy. In fact, that strategy didn't even work for Jesus. Let me show you. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Wait a minute. This is Jesus The God who just fed 10,000 people. This guy who shows up and he's healing the blind and walking on water and doing all these miracles. And he says that you'll find satisfaction in me. And then what happens in the very next, like the very next paragraph? What does it say? It says, from this point on, people turned back and no longer followed him. You know, if we have a strategy as a church or as a Christian, that we come to the mass gathering like the Sunday worship service, and that that's sufficient, it simply does not address the blueprint that Jesus put into his word as to what Christians are supposed to do to make a difference in the world and how they actually experience satisfaction in their soul. So I've known a lot of Christians, they come to church and they're disappointed with church. And they say, I'm just not getting anything in church. 
and I'm not really in love with the church, and I don't really care for the church, and church doesn't do anything for me, and that's because they come to the Sunday service, they listen to singing and preaching from a stage, they, they mar- marginally participate, and then they think that they're going to have the satisfaction Jesus promises. It's because they have an idea of Christian that's not the same blueprint that Jesus has. Jesus is preaching to the masses, and most of them are leaving him. Then he looks over to his 12 disciples and he says to them, are you guys going to leave me too? Do you want to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. How did they come to believe and know that? I mean, the crowd saw Jesus do miracles, didn't they? I mean, they all saw, I mean, there was lots of people who saw Jesus heal blind men and women who made the lame walk. And, and who, uh, you know, who raised, he raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, lots of people saw this. Why wouldn't they follow him? Because Jesus' blueprint recognizes that marginally following people, when the time gets hard, or when the teaching gets hard, will bow out. In fact, there's this whole teaching in the Bible of how the wheat and the tare grow together, how the sheep and the goats are in the same flock, and at the end, it all gets separated because some people who look like Christians really aren't. And some people who look like believers really don't. And some people who say they follow Christ really don't. And so we have this teaching of Jesus, which is, look, I'm calling you as your Lord. I'm calling you to follow me. I'm calling you to trust me. And I'm calling you to be involved with me every day of your life, not just on Sunday morning in your life. Because you see, this, I'm going to tell you this, you can't be fully satisfied in your Christian life if all you do is come to Sunday morning church. Jesus will never satisfy you. And your thirst will never be quenched. You want to know why? Because you're believing that church and the pastor's sermon is going to do what Jesus says only he can do. The pastor cannot be with you every hour of the day feeding you, right? Spiritual food. You're going to walk out the doors and there's a million more voices in your life. And you can take Jesus and compartmentalize him as one piece of your life. You can do that. I did it for many years. I was a marginal Christian. I'd go to church when it suited me, but when I went, I felt like I was doing my duty. But the truth is, I was an angry man, a bitter man, and a miserable man. And I was a pastor of a church, still feeling that way for four years. And you know, at some point in time, right, you read the words of Jesus and you say, either Jesus isn't telling the truth, and this isn't really real, or something's wrong with me. And I'm not getting what he's saying. So notice as we look at what Jesus moves to in his ministry, that he moves away from trying to proclaim to the masses. Now, he had to do that to fulfill the prophecy. And he did that. But here's what he knew about the crowd. The same crowd that can yell, Hosanna, one day can yell, crucify him a couple of days later. Jesus says he entrusted his heart to nobody because he knew what was in the heart of people. So he knew that a crowd was fickle and it could be swayed. 
You think a crowd can't be swayed? Have you looked at any of the political ads on TV lately? Aren't they trying to sway you? Of course. There's an effort, no matter what the subject is, to get you to believe and to follow something or another. And so Jesus did not, in his entire ministry, use these large crowds to try and, and, and change the world. He preached to the crowds so that they would know he had come. But he didn't trust the crowds to get the job done. Here's what he did trust. Instead of trying to solve the macro problem of the world through this mass outreach and being angry and mad, a compassionate Jesus went to the cross where he died alone and then told his disciples to go make more disciples. That's what he said, if you read it. Go into all the world and make disciples. What does that mean? A disciple is a loyal follower of Jesus Christ. How do you follow? Not by attending just the large events, but by actually being with other Christians who are attempting to follow Jesus in groups of two and three and four and and being involved in pursuing Christ that way. Instead of saying, I'm so mad at the world for being in a mess, maybe you should think of it this way. The world is a mess. Let me find a few people or someone to join me in following Jesus passionately. I'm so blessed. That's very different, isn't it? It's so, you know, this is true, right? Somebody will not tell somebody that they love something important, but they'll sit down and post that on Facebook. Where a million people, well, if you're friends like me, 1,013, can see what they're posting. Uh, or if you're popular, you have a bigger following on the social media, right? But what is, what is that about? There is a belief that you can somehow feel better if you talk about the large problems and you're kind of you're talking about it and you're expressing what you don't like or what you do like and you're going to try to convince others that this is, this is who I am, this is what I believe. And, you know, and, and Jesus says, hey, you're not going to make a difference in the world that way. You're just not. And so if you're a Christian and you think that we should all gather together and be mean and mad and, and you know, raise an army and let's go get this thing straight, I'm telling you that's not how Jesus did it. Here's how he did it. Um, I want us to, to look at four, four reasons from this passage here in 1 Peter 3. Four things that he did and four things that we need to remember about Jesus. Now, Peter is a disciple who writes this book. He's one of the 12. He's kind of the head of the disciples. And what do we find out about Peter? He's the most, um, he's the most successful public evangelist. In the New Testament, when you read about Peter, he preaches on the day of Pentecost, and thousands give their life to Christ. But over time, right, you have that event, but over time you don't have that event recorded again. What you have recorded are people getting thrown in jail, people who are in shipwrecks, people who are suffering for their faith, people who are being disowned by their families because they're following Jesus. That's the whole rest of the New Testament. You get one public service where there's a lot of people saved, and then the rest of it is all individuals or small groups of people who are suffering and experiencing difficulty and who are trying to passionately pursue Jesus in a world that is opposed to them. And so Peter writes to them. He's the greatest successful evangelist, but here's what he writes to them. He doesn't tell them to go out and try to to raise a community rebellion. 
Here's what he says. If you should suffer for what is right, if you hold opinions about morals and ethics that come from Scripture, you are right. And in this world, you are going to suffer for it. I'm going to repeat that. If you hold to the teachings of the morals and ethics of Jesus and his apostles from the Word of God, you are right. Because the Word of God is eternal truth. We understand that the Word of God tells us this. And if that's true, guess what the world hates? It hates that. Jesus says, the world hated me before it hates you. Make no mistake, if you claim to follow Jesus and you stand for what Jesus believes, you will suffer and be hated for it. How many of you can I sign up today for such a, such a challenge? That doesn't sound like a very good recruiting tool, does it? And Peter knows that. Hey, Peter knows this is not how you recruit a team. But what he says is this. That being true, don't fear their threats and don't be frightened. You are frightened when you take a stand for Jesus. I don't know a single Christian who, when they stand courageously on something they believe in, doesn't have a little trepidation inside. Serving Christ doesn't come without fear, but serving Christ comes when the Holy Spirit comes on you with courage and boldness, and you can speak because you have a power that's not your own. So Peter says, look, don't be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. All right, so he goes on to say, do this how? With meanness and madness? With disrespect and hollering? No, do this with gentleness and respect. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Folks, I have to tell you that I grieve when I hear that in our community there are Christians who go to public meetings and disrespect our public officials. I am grieved when I hear that. And I'll tell you who's grieved even more, God. When Christians disrespect the authorities of the world, they are disobeying the word of God. God says in Romans 13 and elsewhere, Give respect to the governing authorities because God placed them in authority over you. Who put authority over you? God did. And when you treat that authority disrespectfully, you are telling God something about what he's decided to do. Yeah, but pastor, take a look around. This stuff is wrong. We used to have it right. Yeah, I know the rest of the world lives this way too. And you're being pushed to the margins. You used to be at the center of society, and now you're being pushed to the margins. Are you going to grab a sword like Peter so you can cut off the ear of the, of the guy who was serving the Sanhedrin? And Jesus has to take that guy's ear and put it back on and said, Put down your sword. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. Christians do not fight with the weapons of the world. We don't. Christians, excuse me, those who follow Christ are to follow this blueprint. 
What are the four things of this blueprint? Four things to remember from the blueprint. Number one, it's normal to be frightened. You are going to take a stand for Jesus. It's normal to be frightened. No one who's ever got serious about living for Christ in a public space doesn't feel a bit of trepidation, as I mentioned already. It's normal to be frightened. Secondly, the essence of discipleship is worshiping Jesus from your heart. Now, we gather here on Sunday mornings and we sing and we call this a worship service. You know what this is supposed to be? This is supposed to be the public gathering together of all of those Christians who every day this past week were worshiping God individually in their homes and in their jobs. And then you come together on Sunday to worship together and find strength from one another because the group as a group is out there in the world in whatever network of circle and influence God's given you and you get strengthened so that you can leave this place and live for Christ again. So Peter says what? Revere Christ in your heart. The word revere comes from a similar root that we have the word reverence come from, or reverend. It's something that is set aside that worships God. So when Peter talks here, and he's writing to people who are believers in a wicked, wicked world, in a world that doesn't believe anything like they believe, he says to them what? Don't be afraid to live in that world. Don't let fear motivate you. God's work is not a work of fear. If you're afraid, fear comes from the enemy, not from God. I want to repeat that. Fear comes from the enemy, not from God. If the whole thing falls apart tomorrow, will God still take care of you? Yes or no? Yes. You may have to forfeit things that you like. You may have to forfeit security in which you trust. You may have to forfeit money that you've worked hard to gain. But will Jesus Christ still take care of you? Yes, he will. Because he promises to, and he's your Lord and Savior. So when we fear, we fear losing things of this world. When what we ought to fear is losing the things of the next. And of course it's not going to be easy if that stuff happens. But God will give us the strength to endure it if it does. Nonetheless... What does God want us to do? Revere Christ in our hearts. Worship him in our hearts. And when we worship him in our hearts, and when we know that he is true, and when his word and his, his person is satisfying our hunger and our thirst, then what are we supposed to do? With whomever God brings across our path, we are supposed to be ready to share the hope we have in Christ. Now, all that means is the poet, I, don't know, I forget if it's Emerson or Thoreau, I forget now, but said, most people live lives of quiet desperation. And that's the truth. Almost everybody in the world has something inside of them that creates desperation and fear. And there are people out there in the world who are the enemies of God, who have reasons to fear. Maybe they fear that they're sick and they might die and they don't know what happens to them whenever death comes. And you have a hope inside of you, don't you, as a believer, that death isn't the end. And what if God brought that person into your, into your circle of influence 
and you, they, they just opened up and shared, I'm, I'm terrified that the tests I took at the hospital are going to be cancer or a heart condition, and I don't know, I don't want to die. I don't know what comes after that. And you can say what as a believer? Listen, Christians have a hope that death is not the end. It's just a transformation into the presence of God, and that one day God is going to raise you up with a brand new body never to die again. Just like Jesus came forth from the dead, so will you. Now that's hope that the world doesn't have. And Paul says, we grieve as those who have, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Or what if somebody comes up to you and they're really worried about their future? What if this boy or this girl, they don't like me enough to, to, to marry me? Uh, and they're worried about their relationships. And what can you say? Well, I have the hope that no matter what my human relationships are, I have an eternal relationship with God through Jesus that will never change, that God has accepted me just as I am, and he'll accept you too. And what you really need more than that human relationship is the knowledge that a loving God will never turn his back on you, no matter your circumstance, right? You can give, you, can't you see how when people come to you with the problems that the hope you have in Jesus is available just in short Common conversations where you simply say, hey, here's why I have hope and why I'm not worried about that particular thing. Or maybe you say, I used to worry about that, but God gave me some victory when I became a Christian. What does Peter say? You have to be prepared to talk about your hope. Jesus came to give us hope. And the world lives without it. So guess what? You can be sure that if you're really serious about following Jesus, and he said, make disciples, that God's going to bring somebody into your life. And here's the truth. You can do what I cannot. Studies show that when somebody at your workplace or in your family has a problem that they're concerned enough to talk about it with somebody, that the person that they seek is normally a colleague, not a counselor and not a pastor. Which means the majority of opportunities to talk to people in a moment of crisis is your opportunity, probably not mine. Pastors in the list of jobs that people respect in our world used to be in the top ten. You know what they are now? They're not even in the top 100. I, I'm, I'm thankful when people respect my office. But, you know, most people out there in the world, they don't respect this office. The people that normally do, that come to hear the teaching, are the folks who have followed Christ and have a respect generally in their life. But there's an enormous part of the world that doesn't respect the office of pastor. And they're not seeking him out whenever they have a problem. You know who they're seeking out? Somebody that they know. And if that somebody that they know has been gentle and respectful of them, and has shown them compassion and love. Guess who they might talk to? You. You. They're not going to come call me up probably. Some will. Most won't. Most of them are going to continue to live a life of quiet desperation unless all of us decide that we are going to be serious about two or three individuals or the individual that comes across our path and to the best of our ability with God's help Share with them the hope we have. You can't expect people to be perfect. And you cannot expect people who don't follow Christ to act like they do. 
They won't. They're lost. And Jesus looked at them and he said, I have compassion. And because he had compassion, what did he do? He took 12 and he said, you go and you make disciples just like I've made you a disciple. And that's what they did. And they went out and they changed the world, didn't they? In 313 A.D., the Emperor Constantine, the Roman Emperor Constantine, who had one of the longest reigns in Roman history, he started reigning in 306 jointly with another person, and in 316, or 322, he became sole, the, the sole um, emperor of all of Rome, and he lived until, I want to say, 42. So he had like this reign of 35, 36, 7 years. He was in office as the emperor a long time, and he managed to avoid getting assassinated, apparently. But in 313, Constantine issued something called the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan allowed Christianity to be an officially recognized religion of the Roman Empire. Now you say, why is that so important? Well, here's why. In 312, Constantine had a battle for control of the empire. And and at at a place called the Milvian Bridge, Constantine said he had a vision of a cross, which is commonly referred to as Cairo. You can look it up online. Just type in C-H-I-R-O. And, 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 and he heard a voice when he saw that, that sign of the cross telling him, by this sign, conquer. And so he, the next year, declared Christianity a religion because he embraced it based on his so-called vision. But most of the historians who look at his story are divided about whether that's really the truth. What they really think is this. Since Constantine only marginally followed Jesus the rest of his life, here's what they think happened. They think that he looked out at his society and he saw that Christians were taking over the world and he decided, as all politicians do, I need that interest block following me. Now, up until that edict, how had Christians changed the world? Because they started with a dying man on a cross in a rural, remote part of the world. Their early followers were thrown in jails and crucified and sent to Roman Colosseums where they got eaten by lions. Uh, They suffered shipwrecks. They were stoned to death as, as blasphemers. And in 312 years, they had so taken over the world that the emperor had no choice but to say Christianity is the side I'm going to fall on. You know where they worshipped? They worshipped in catacombs. You know what catacombs are? If you ever go to Rome, go there. Catacombs are graves under the ground. And that's where Christians held their worship services because if they got caught, they were going to be sent to the lions. And they developed a whole secret code of talking. If two Christians were talking, but they didn't know if each other were a Christian, one guy would draw a half of a fish sign. And if the guy he was talking to was also a Christian, he would draw the top half of the fish sign. You want to know how the fish sign became a Christian symbol? It became a Christian symbol because they were fearful for their life, and they needed a secret code to know if they were talking to a Christian or a pagan. How did they change the world? They had no political clout. No political power. They had no ability to change laws. They had zero 
capacity, and yet they changed the world. How? They loved people. When people were sick, they built hospitals that the Roman government wouldn't build. When people were in prison, they fed the prisoners that the Roman government wouldn't feed. When somebody was widowed, they provided food for the widow because her husband was no longer alive to provide for her. When a child was orphaned, when the Roman government wouldn't provide a way for orphans to be adopted, the Christians did. And guess what? The love of Christians towards those who were the pagan enemies, following the word of Jesus, if your enemy strikes your cheek, turn your other cheek, pray for your enemies, bless those who spitefully use you, they believed those words of Jesus and they followed them. And when they did, the kingdom of God came in fullness. Somewhere between there and now, we somehow forgot that the way God changes the world and brings righteousness to it is by one Christian at a time being serious to follow Jesus in whatever influential person God brings into his life. We say we want to lead revival. That's one of our phrases. What does that mean? That millions of people will flock to the worship service on Sunday? No. What if what God wanted to do here was to get every individual so passionate about Jesus that they were on mission to two or three, loving the lost, caring for them, ministering to them, and the whole area got transformed because this church loved people who hated it. Pastor, you're asking for the impossible. No, I'm not. It's only impossible if you try to do it in the flesh. It's not impossible when the Spirit of God comes on you. When the Spirit of God comes on you, you can love people that are hard to love. You can pray for enemies who have treated you bitterly and badly. When the Spirit of God comes on you, you can be patient and kind and long-suffering. Sometimes that needs to happen in our home before it can happen out in the community. But here's what I know. If you're following Jesus and you're serious about being his follower, then you read the words of Christ, you hear the words of the apostle, and you say, I'm not going to be afraid to live for Christ. I am going to share the hope that I have inside of me. I'm going to be respectful as I do it, recognizing that God can use me for his glory. You can't change the world, but you can change one person's life if you yourself are willing to be changed by Christ. Jesus, thank you for your word. May you use it in our life to cause us to think deeply about the world in which we live. Now, Lord, we live in a country and in a place right now where we're confused because we've never seen this before. But the truth is, Lord, this is how the world has acted since the first sin in the Garden of Eden. We've just been kind of kept from seeing the ugliness of sin and now, Lord, as the enemy and as those who hold to a different belief system push their way into the center of the conversation, and we look at their beliefs and say, how in the world did they arrive at those? And we're being pushed out to the margins. Here's what I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to remember. The church has always changed the world from the margins and never from the center. So, Jesus, if you're pushing us to the margins intentionally, let us embrace it. And let us, with joy and love towards those who need you, be kind, compassionate, considerate, loving, caring, and desirous to see people changed by the power of Christ. And now I pray, Lord, that you will bring into our life this week one 
or two persons that need encouragement. And I pray that we will have the strength and courage to be that encouragement and to share the hope that is within. Lord, we're anxious to see what you'll do through this series called Blueprints and how lives might be transformed here in our community because your people get serious about following you in this arena. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. From all of us here at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.